0: Hello and welcome back to Pan Am. I'm your host, Amber, and this is a podcast all about Paris, the unusual, forgotten or overlooked. Now, if you're listening for the first time, then welcome, but also stop what you're doing and listen to last week's episode, because this is a two-parter. Last week, I left you with the assassination of Maha and the execution of Charlotte Corday. But what happened next? Come with me and let's find out. So let's recap. The young Charlotte Corday has come down from her family home in Normandy to kill Marat. She believes he's a monster and responsible for the September massacres and general havoc. She manages to see him at his home in his bathtub, where with one stab she pierces his heart and kills him. She is immediately arrested, tried, and just four days later executed. She is stoic and brave throughout. But these two deaths are remembered very differently, certainly in Paris. As to Charlotte, she seems largely unlamented, aside from her family, I suppose. On the other hand, Paris seemed distraught at the passing of Marat and went to great lengths to bury and celebrate this great man. To begin with, the entire national convention attended Marat's funeral and he was buried under a willow tree in the garden of the Club des Cordeliers. Marat's tomb was surrounded with an iron railing and in the centre was a small shrine containing his bust, his lamp, his bathtub and his inkstand, and people could come and pay their respects. On his tomb, the inscription on a plaque read Unity, indivisibility de la République, liberté, égalité, fraternité ou la mort. Unity, indivisibility of the Republic, liberty, equality, fraternity or death. His heart was embalmed separately and placed in an urn on an altar erected to his memory at the Cordeliers Club to inspire speeches that were similar in style to Marat's eloquent journalism. Their words, not mine. Not only that, but even towns in France changed their name to Marat. The port city of Le Havre du Grasse changed its name to Le Havre Marat. But even this was not enough. On the 21st of September 1794, his remains were transferred to the Pantheon, the secular mausoleum containing the remains of the most distinguished French citizens. It happened on the same day that Mirabu, the first person to ever be buried in the pantheon, was being kicked out because his secret dealings with the king had come to light and he was now person non grata. Marat not only took his place, but his very tomb. His near messianic role in the revolution was confirmed with this eulogy. Quote, Like Jesus, Maha loved ardently the people, and only them. Like Jesus, Maha hated kings, nobles, priests, rogues, and, like Jesus, he never stopped fighting against these plagues of the people. This eulogy was given by the man who also gave us sadism, the Marquis de Sade. Marat became a quasi-saint and his bust often replaced crucifixions in the former churches of Paris and other religious statues. Remember the Rue des Ors and the Miraculous Virgin, whose statue and tradition were quashed by Marat in our episode about street signs. Something else that helped drive this almost religious devotion was the painting by David. So let us cast our eyes back to the painting before us. Now, although it depicts a real event, the way it has been treated by David is very telling of his opinions, the feelings at the time, but it also helped to inform people's opinions. David was a supporter of the radical revolutionary forces, a member of the Jacobin Club and a personal friend of Maha. In fact, he had seen him alive just the day before, likewise in his bathtub, and so knew exactly what to paint. David had painted an idealised version of Maha. His skin is luminescent, flawless, when in reality it would have been disfigured by his skin disease. His pose reminds us deliberately of the Pieta, of Christ being mourned, having just been taken down from the cross. But remember, the revolutionary world sought to dismantle both the monarchy and the church. Here in this painting we see a new secular martyr, dead for the cause of the revolution. His arm, neck, chest collarbone reminiscent of the neoclassical bodies that David was used to painting. Beautiful, contoured, muscular, not withered from illness, disfigured by disease. Light from an unknown source shines on Mahat's face. Traditionally, this would have once been divine light, and now I suppose its source must be that of reason. It illuminates Mahat's face, which appears peaceful, in thought, almost smiling. In his right hand, he holds a plume the symbol of his writing, in his left hand, the treacherous letter from Charlotte Corday. The painting is often compared to The Entombment of Christ by Caravaggio. We know David admired his work and the position of the body and use of light brings the work to mind. However, where Caravaggio's painting is full, there is an emptiness and sparseness to David's painting. Marat is alone. The only sign of Charlotte is the letter he holds in his hand, the murder weapon on the floor and the wound we can see on his chest. But by her very absence, she's brought to mind. She's standing, like us, as a spectator to the scene. David did this deliberately. He wished to exclude her from the image. He believed that she was unworthy and would be forgotten by history. But he was wrong about that. Charlotte Corday fascinated people. They couldn't believe that a woman and such a young woman could commit such a crime, and with a knife, such a violent weapon, when it was thought that the weapon of choice for women was poison. There was even doubt for a time that she was even a woman but rather a man in disguise. Because of her notoriety, there has been some speculation about what happened to her remains, specifically her skull. In 1889, the Universal Exposition was held in Paris, and a great many intellectuals and experts from a range of fields came to Paris to share their knowledge and ideas. Sigmund Freud was there, and so too was Thomas Edison. And when they were not marvelling at the newly built Eiffel Tower, they were attending all sorts of conferences. One such conference was the International Congress of Criminal Anthropology, an organisation which tried to address fundamental questions concerning criminality. Why does some people commit crime? Does childhood, personality or society make a difference? And what can be done about it? Attending these events was Prince Roland Bonaparte, the great nephew of Napoleon. The prince was a collector of curiosities, and one of his treasured items was Charlotte Corday's skull. To the delight of the gathered scientists, he allowed them to examine it. A fascinating opportunity, especially for those scientists who believe that criminals are born, and that it is possible to identify their deviant and dangerous predispositions from physical traits. Corday's skull would offer a unique opportunity to look at an otherwise normal, unassuming young woman who committed a most brutal and unexpected crime. Cesar Lombroso, a believer in this idea of born criminals, did so and proclaimed that the skull bore all the hallmarks of a criminal, that it was asymmetrical, vaguely masculine, and had an indentation at the back of the head called the occipital fossette. And that this, therefore, meant that this was the skull of someone destined to commit murder. Of course, other scientists disagreed. And of course, we would also disagree today. The real question, however, is was it really Charlotte's skull they were examining? And if so, how did it get there? There are a few theories around this. Some say it was the executioner himself that stole the skull and sold it later. Others point to the fact that she was autopsied and her skull was present, so the executioner could not have stolen it, but maybe it was taken at this point by one of the surgeons. Yet another theory points to the person who bought the land of the Madeline Cemetery and supposedly marked out where Charlotte had been buried and recuperated her skull. When pressed, the prince said that he acquired it from the writer and historian Georges Duret, who had chanced upon it at the home of an elderly relative, who was the widow of the politician Alexandre Rousselin Corbeau de Saint Albin. There was even documentation attesting to its authenticity. Saint Albin claimed that he had bought the skull from an antiquarian on the Quai de Grand Augustin, who had himself acquired it at auction. The original owner was said to have been a fervent admirer of Charlotte Corday, who had been able to have her remains exhumed and had kept the skull. Who could be this hypothetical fervent admirer? There were a number of ideas, including Danton, who had, after all, not balked at exhuming his own wife. In any case, there's no real evidence that the skull displayed by the prince was in fact the real one, but it does attest to the continued interest in her legacy. The skull was last seen by the public in 1966 at the Goya Museum alongside the death mask of Marat in an exhibition entitled Marat, Medicine and the Revolution. It was lent for the occasion by Prince André Radziville, son of Eugenie of Greece, the granddaughter of Prince Roland. The current whereabouts of the skull are unknown. As to Marat, his illustrious status in France did not last long, because by 1795 his name had become tarnished. In response, Le Havre de Marat was changed to Le Havre, a name the city still goes by today. Marat's coffin was also removed from the Pantheon to a nearby church, the Saint Etienne du Mont, and all the busts and sculptures of Marat were destroyed. One unfortunate statue was snatched by some children who apparently paraded it through the streets insulting it before dumping it in the Rue Montmartre sewer to shouts of Marat, voilà ton pension. Marat, here is your Pantheon. The National Convention also approved that the honours of the Pantheon shall not be voted to any man or his bust put up in the Hall of Convention or any public place till ten years after his death. Marat has the dubious honor of being one of only 4 people to be removed from the Pantheon or as the French say de-pantheonized. Today, you will not find many signs of Marat in Paris. Like most leaders of the revolution, his bloody philosophy does not age well. You cannot see his tomb, there is no metro stop bearing his name, nor a street named after him. But there is still one curious artifact of his life that you can visit, the famous bathtub, immortalised in David's painting. Today, it is at the Musée Gravin, the waxworks museum. How it got there is also quite a story. Immediately following his death, our faithful friend Madame Tussaud was called upon to make a death mask of Marat. She describes, quote, Gendarme came for me to go to the house of Marat just after he had been killed by Charlotte Corday for the purpose of taking a cast of his face, she recalled.» He was still warm, and his bleeding body and the cadaverous aspect of his almost diabolical features presented a picture replete with horror, and I performed my task under the most painful sensations. Quote. Some have cast doubt on the reliability of her memoirs, wondering whether her fondness for a good story allowed her to be flexible with the truth. She claims to have made a death mask of a number of the most famous victims of the guillotine, despite the fact that the revolutionary government went to some lengths to avoid people taking relics, trophies or making death masks. I suppose we cannot really know. What is true is that there is a death mask of Marit, it does exist and it can be seen at the Musee Carnavali. But what of his bath, I hear you ask? Now, remember this is not a modern bath. It looks a little like a shoe or a small little boot in shape. There's an opening just at the top where you can slide in and the rest of you is enclosed so your legs would be completely encased. It's also quite small. It's not meant for lying down, but rather sitting, and it's made of metal. Now, this was for a number of reasons. Indoor plumbing was not yet a thing, so it would have been impossible to fill a modern bath. And of course, trying to keep the water hot meant it would be more practical to have it covered. Now, most people at this time would not have had a bath at their home, but used public baths. But some people would be able to rent a bath just like this one. It's possible that Marat did own his own bath, considering he did need to bathe so regularly. But what happened to this most singular of relics? Well, we know it was taken for a while to his grave at the Cordelier Club, but following his fall from grace, it was also disposed of. Then in 1885, the bath made a reappearance in the small town of Sarzeau in Brittany, in the hands of a priest. Apparently, an old lady, Mademoiselle Capriol de Saint-Hilaire, died in 1862, and without heir, her belongings were in his hands, amongst them a bath that she remembers her father buying when she was a girl from a scrap metal dealer in Paris in 1805, on the rue d'Argenteuil. Why her father bought it, considering he was a Catholic and a royalist, is unknown, but it seems that its provenance is accepted. Enough, at any rate, that the Musée Grévin decided to part with 5,000 francs, about 15,000 euros, today. The priest who had the bath had really been hoping for some sort of bidding war and imagined getting rich from this bloody revolutionary relic. But sadly, it was only the Grévin who wanted it. The money went to renovate a girls' school. Let's hope they were all as brave as Charlotte. I'm sure Marat would be turning in his bath at the thought of it. It's on display at the moment at the Musée Greven, and they've recreated that famous scene. So if you want, you can go check it out as soon as it opens again. That's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed the show. Do get in contact with me and let me know your feelings. And of course, you can always leave me a review. Also, I have a new Patreon page. So if you would like to help support the show, that would be amazing. I'll put links to that in the show notes. Thank you as ever to Christopher for all your technical support, musical support, mixing and general amazingness. Take care of yourselves. Bye bye.